You are listening to CFRO Community Radio Station. The upcoming show, Conscious Living Radio, is a program that explores frontiers of consciousness, spirituality, personal growth, emerging paradigms in psychology, health, science, and innovative philosophies that reflect commitment to the advancement of individual, social, and global transformation. Welcome to the show. You're listening to Conscious Living Radio 100.5 FM in Vancouver, Co-op Radio. I'm Tasha Sims here with Mark Curran. And today we're talking about a really exciting CBC documentary directed and produced by Tiffany Ayalik and Carolyn Cox, as well as Tyler Kisun Taylor. It's called Okpik, Little Village in the Arctic. Tiffany's an Inuit performer, filmmaker, actor, singer, based in Vancouver, born and raised in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. And she and her film and TV partner, Carolyn Cox, they recently released an award-winning documentary, Food for the Rest of Us. So she combines knowledge learned from her elders, as well as theater, storytelling, and music in her work. Um, We're going to be featuring some of her music later on in the show. She co-creates with her sister, Inukshuk Makai, and the group, the duo, is called Pilk Silk. Yes, I had to practice. I had to ask Tiffany, am I saying it it right? (laughs) Um, So the film, Upkick, Little Village in the Arctic, was made in an effort to create housing security and an opportunity for cultural 
uh, revitalization in the traditional territory of the Beaufort Delta. It's being released both in English and in Inuvia Laktun. How did I do there? Pretty good. Uh, which is becoming an endangered language. We'll hear more about that. The story follows Kylik Taylor, his daughter, and a team of people as they build a traditional log cabin with a sod roof in the Arctic. It's the beginning of a vision, really, and we're going to be talking deeply about that, an off-the-grid community and farm rooted in Indigenous methods of hunting and fishing and more. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. It's a beautiful film. I'm so excited that you made it and that people are going to get to see it. I wonder if we can start, I mean, the Inuit thrived and lived, obviously, in the Arctic for thousands and thousands of years. And now we have this, you know, in harmony with with the environment. And now I'm hearing things that, like, it's surprising. Food shortages, housing, water. What are we talking about? So, Maybe you could paint the picture of how life was and then how colonization, which I'm I'm definitely sure has a part to play here, wrecked havoc in such a thriving um, area. Yeah, of course. Um, I think that going all the way back is a huge part of this film and understanding that um, our ancestors were so incredibly brilliant, resilient masters of ingenuity and invention and um, solved some of these original problems for us in the first place. And that by looking back at some of these things, we can have basically a blueprint for how we can go forward. So Inuit in the Arctic, um, you know, if people don't know, maybe people don't uh, um, know a lot about the history of Inuit, have um, always lived in the circumpolar um, from uh, the western reaches of uh, northern Canada in Nunavut, NWT, all the way across, you know, northern Quebec, uh, all the way over into Greenland, Alaska, parts of Russia. So basically where you're at the top of the world, Inuit have had that as their traditional land. And um, Inuit are traditionally a nomadic people, never settling in one spot for very long, um, and have always been incredibly um, ecologically minded and that a a large practice among a lot of people was to never stay in one spot for too long because it was too even even a small Inuit hunting family of you know no more than maybe a dozen people would be aware of the environmental impacts of staying in one place too long and affecting the ecosystem and not wanting to put a burden or not wanting to affect um the biodiversity or the delicacy or the the delicateness of that area and would sometimes um, not even return to the same um, hunting or fishing place um, multiple years in a row if you could still see that there was, um, you know, evidence of human activity. Mm -hmm. So this is from a people who were um, vastly, vastly important in herd management, in in, uh, species counting, you know, you know, all of these things that we attribute to sort of Western science as, you know, Inuit being some of the originators in, you know, low carbon footprint, 100 mile diet, you know, all, <laughs> all things that, you know, really um, uh, Inuit culture is like very, very much um, in support of using what you have, being resourceful, not uh, damaging the environment, really respecting the land, the water and the animals that you're interacting with. And 
not only surviving in some of the harshest climates in the world, but thriving and, and having beautiful, vibrant cultural elements and um, rich artistic practices and um, forms of beautiful art, artistic expression. So um, I think that when we see the complete freedom that Inuit had pre-contact to follow the food, to go wherever they wanted, to interact and not be encumbered, um, to be able to provide for their families, build their homes wherever they wanted, um, to have complete freedom, to then, you know, very recently within the last hundred years being forced by the government to be settled into communities. So Inuit have always been pawns in the Arctic sovereignty project that is Canada. So to be able to see that Inuit played a very important role in Canada's sovereignty over the Arctic to claim parts of the Arctic um, as Russia and Alaska and other countries were also vying for Arctic territory that in some cases Inuit were moved from their traditional areas, thousands of kilometers <laughs> to completely foreign um, places in the Arctic were forced to settle without having any idea how to survive in that completely different area so that the Canadian government could say, oh, look, the Inuit are ours and we've and they're they're all the way up here on right. this island. So this is still technically Canada as well. So Inuit are no strangers to really feeling the brunt of a lot of um, uh, racist and colonial practices that have really um, in a lot of ways completely uprooted us from our places that we know and our ancestral homelands um, as a as a pawn in this sort of Arctic sovereignty project. Mm-hmm. And so when that happens, um, a whole way of life has been interrupted, a whole way of, of being, of interacting with each other, of interacting with, you know, the land, with animals, with um, hunting practices, a whole blueprint for knowledge was really lost because of those kinds of things. And that was just, that was just being forced to stay in one place. Now, fast forward a few generations to the residential school era, where children were literally kidnapped from their communities and brought outside of the North in some cases and brought down South. Um, And so we see this further fracturing of Inuit cultural identity and Inuit cultural blueprint that would be passed down from from grandparents to parents to grandchildren and great-grandchildren in a lot of cases where you have these multi-generational families living and playing and working and hunting and surviving and thriving all together to see a huge, um, you know, wedge, a huge fracture that goes into that transmission of knowledge. And now we're in, you know, we're in this pseudo post-residential school um, era, but I would still argue that um, in a lot of ways, we still do have residential schools in Canada because there are not high schools in every remote Inuit community or every remote Indigenous community. So children are still forced by law to go attend high school, attend schools, um, live with strangers, live with people that aren't their family and go to school away from their community. So I think residential schools have transformed and there's more awareness of like black and white photos of priests, you know, and nuns, you know, with children with their cut hair in front of a a large institutional looking building. But I think that a lot of um, those mentalities still exist because we still don't have 
schools in every community. So children still are forced to leave their family. And, and the psychological of all of this that you're describing is sort of a loss. I mean, that loss of community and belonging and knowing yourself and your roots it's so important for, for one's well-being, mental, emotional, spiritual. And Absolutely. somewhere in here, there's a judgment. I, I mean, at the root of all this, there's some judgment that this way is better than this way, mm-hmm. right? The Western uh, perception. Absolutely. Carry that, which is like imprinting generations. And I'm sure that's going to lead us to what's going on now in terms of the psyche of the youth and um, torn in a way, especially some of them who, who might be looking at some things in Western culture that are like, oh, I like that, I want that. And yet, and then is, you know, what's the price to pay in terms of one's self-esteem and knowledge of one's worth really is what I'm talking about. Exactly. So when that's all the external messaging that you're getting yeah. about your the way that you look, the way that you talk, the food that you eat, the things you believe in, where you live, how your clothes look, you know, when you get all of this external bombardment from literally every other, you know, source around you, and you have your tiny family unit, that's the only thing that's trying to counter some of this very racist and colonial programming. You know, there's only so much a culture can take over decades and decades of being bombarded with that messaging before that starts to get completely internalized. And then once it's internalized, that's when we as Indigenous people take on this colonial project as like, all right, we've wound up the monkeys and now it's just, it can be a self-running machine. And now, now colonizers can, you know, take a load off and know that, you know, the, (laughs) all systems are go and they can kind of sit back and just watch us destroy ourselves. And that's a thing that has played out over, pick any country in the world that has any other natural resource or any other thing of value that cloying hands have wanted to grasp at, that this is a well-practiced, fine-tuned mechanism of of oppression over generations. Yeah, we're talking patriarchy here. I mean, it's it's just at the root of it, right? Survival of the fittest, it's the root. Colonial patriarchy, misogyny is, is all this intersecting Venn diagram of oppression that you can just kind of plop onto any, (laughs) any people. Um, And so what, what I, um, what I think happens is after we've internalized that, then we police ourselves and then we, then we can be the own, our own gatekeepers and our own police force within our communities um, to keep things the way that they are and to stop cultural revitalization from, from happening. So I feel like we're in a very interesting place um, in the Inuit community, in the Indigenous community at large in Canada, where we're having a lot more understanding and a lot of conversation around, you know, like, what's after the land acknowledgement? What's after someone comes out with a clipboard and says, I'd like to acknowledge that I am on the traditional territory of the blah, 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 and, you know, that there's... um, what happens after I feel like those kinds of things were amazing interventions for the time, but that doesn't mean that that's where our work stops. What happens next? And and then once we get to that place, what happens next after that, because it's right. a, it's an ongoing spectrum of, of justice that needs to keep moving forward. And, so, and 
And that's what your film literally addresses that. And yeah. not only not only what you just said that, you know, what's next, but that you're not in it on your own. It's not just an Indigenous issue. We're all exactly. in this together and we have to do something about it. We have to right the wrongs because yeah. everyone can see. I, I mean, it's great. People are starting to see that something happened that's a, you're right it's a beginning but what's next I think, I think there's a huge gap in the conversation of reconciliation that has to also do with white trauma mm. say this more is, this is this is white culture also and I don't mean just generic whiteness I mean even settler white settler folks from you know wherever are, are people with rich vibrant cultures that come from somewhere else but I feel like any white passing Canadian that I talk to, and if I ask them where they're from, the common thing that I hear is, oh, I'm a Heinz 57, or, you know, I'm just a Canadian, or like, no, whiteness is this really new concept that a lot of people have adopted that is also devoid of their own cultures. Right. And that people also, white people also need to be doing cultural work to be reconnecting to something that has otherwise become a void and then that's when I think appropriation happens when people aren't connected to their own cultures. So I feel like a huge missing part of um, the Canadian conversation is that this isn't just an indigenous issue. This is something that needs to happen on both sides of treaties. This is a, a trauma that has happened to both of us and uh, non-indigenous people settler people in Canada should also be looking at this is the lineage that I am also coming from. And that's traumatic. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's not okay. Also. So I feel mm -hmm. like these sites of healing, these air, these avenues where um, uh, allies and non-Indigenous people can be respectfully supporting the reclamation and revitalization and renaissance of Indigenous culture is a huge, huge, important step in helping us to have access to the space, time, energy, resources, to be able to survive and pay our rent at the same time as, as we are reclaiming our cultures mm -hmm. and language, because it's not going to happen overnight. And um, that's a really great way to promote cross-cultural collaboration and, and deeper understanding. Um, the more siloed we are, the more opportunity we're going to have for misunderstanding. And I, I love what you're saying, because from a, a spiritual perspective, every word coming out of your mouth um, is celebrating sameness, celebrating that beyond our, as you say, yes, everyone has a cultural root and ancestors, but the spirit that's going to unify us is the same spirit, right? And that, and I think when you are cut off from your culture, you're often cut off from your spirituality as well, because it's a part of that culture. And, and perhaps that's also something, I mean, be, wouldn't it be lovely if we could actually join together and for, for all people to um, begin to live with this, this feeling of sameness and kindness and um, something blossoming that's beautiful. That would be a, a wonderful thing. Okay, so... I know there were a lot of um, social issues, housing issues, water, even. How did that all come about? How did, well, the social ones we've touched on, I think suicide rates and disenfranchised youth and alcohol and drugs, all those things are um, violence. All those things are, are a symptom 
of the colonial oppression. Like to me, it's that's a that's a no brainer. We got that one. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, there are programs and people being involved now that are offering help in a way that's meaningful. But tell me about the housing and the water. Like, how did how's that? So it's been a crisis. I, I understand for over a decade housing. Yeah. Oh, since the beginning, I think that as soon as as soon as Inuit were forced into, um, you know, government and social housing, you take a people that have never lived, like my grandmother, for example, was born on the land. This is my this is my grandmother, my 83 year old grandmother. This is is the generation that we're talking about. So she was her and her family were forced to come and live in a community, in a house, in a little matchstick house. That's what they called them. Um, these tiny little like one bedroom um, shacks and said, you can't, you live here now and you can't leave. And we're going to shoot all of your dogs so that you can't leave anymore. And now you have to be part of a system where you need money. We're going to introduce money to your culture and we're going to introduce, we're going to introduce commerce that now you have to be doing a system that is completely foreign to your entire worldview of looking after each other and looking after your community and sharing wealth and not a huge concept of personal ownership um, and just like huge collectivity and cooperation mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. So now it's capitalism has been completely forced on in that's my grandmother and my dad and me, like that's how, that's how recent it was. Yeah. And I don't think people really understand the, the, the hyper speed in which Inuit have had to adapt to the modern world. Um, there's a really well-known, respected Inuit elder uh, named Pita Ilnip, and he often says, Inuit were forced to go from Stone Age to Space Age in 50 years. Wow. So no, man- no wonder we're reeling. No wonder we're reeling. In some indigenous cultures in Canada, when contact happened in, you know, the 1500s or, you know, any time after that, you have people in ships with carts and wagons interacting with people who have been also living off the land. That's a different mm-hmm. navigation of power. That's a different navigation of technology mm-hmm. who didn't have electricity, who didn't have, you know, you know, who, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of years ago, that's a different meeting as opposed to somebody who is 83 years old, like my grandmother, who now knows how to use an iPad and a telephone. And <laughs> so I don't, I just don't think people, Canadians really understand the light years speed that Inuit have had to adjust to the modern Western world and how shocking that is to a system and to a, to a culture. And no wonder we are reeling with, um, with social issues because of widespread cultural trauma that was not our fault, complete lack of um, any resources to help us with those traumas. And so we're forced to find solutions ourselves. And some of those solutions involve, I have no judgment for people that use alcohol as a self-medicating thing because there are no mental health services in the North. (laughs) In some communities, if you want want counseling, if you want in-person counseling, you need to make an appointment you get one appointment for once a month for 15 minutes. And that often that counselor will change every month. So if you want any, which is from, from a, from a, from an emotional mental health perspective is incredibly dangerous to be completely re-traumatizing yourself 
every month telling the same thing over and over and having no consistency for mental health services. That's like, shocking. What universe is this okay? <laughs> so, you know, sure, if, if drinking keeps you alive because that's the only medicine you have access to, I support 100% the thing that is keeping you alive right now. And so I don't think Canadians really understand no. that at all. The, no. the complete lack of services to, to Inuit in the Arctic. No, I think there's an assumption that there's this overabundance. Even in the question I asked you, I had the assumption that there was a plethora of services being offered. Why is there not? Because nobody cares about Inuit. <laughs> we are the smallest Indigenous group. We are the most isolated. We are 45,000 people in Canada that take that are responsible for what 30% of Canada's landmass. We are so far away. We are so spread out. We don't have access to the same internet, to the same communications, to um, many of our communities are landlocked uh, by, and you can only fly in or fly out. You can't just go for a drive and go on a holiday. You have to take a thousands and thousands of dollar flight to go to the big city of Yellowknife or, you know, Winnipeg. Right. So I think that we're so out of sight, out of mind for a lot of Canadians and people just don't have the understanding of, and we're also quiet people. We, I, I don't think, I think culturally that we're, um, culturally it's, it, it's harder for us to sort of speak up and speak out because we're a very live and let live um, culture. That's, you know, if, you know, if nobody's causing direct harm, we don't like to, you know, upset the, or at least a lot of people in like my parents' generation, you know, if it's not directly causing harm, you know, like kind of find a way to make your peace and let it go. And harmony, 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 for the most part was a really well-valued thing. But that only makes sense if you're playing the same game with the same group of people who understand that social contract. And as we know, Western capitalistic colonialism um, isn't playing by that rule. And if they see a more docile people, great, their work is easier. There's less, <laughs> there's less that they have to do in, in controlling a whole group of people. Mm -hmm. So I think Inuit now are starting to, to understand that um, Inuit cultural values of, of harmony are only, only okay if you're playing, if you're fighting in the same ring with somebody who's playing the same rules as you. And that's clearly not the case that we're dealing with, with our own, um, you know, uh, public housing and health issues and um like how long did it take Iqaluit to get to the bottom of their <laughs> water issue with having fuel gasoline leaking into their water source yeah, yeah. it was a there was an emergency they, they yeah. had to fly water up on jumbo jets to to make sure that nobody was drinking contaminated water and that's one community in Canada where okay. currently probably 112 or 15 Indigenous communities in this country still can't drink their own water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the film, I guess that was that part of your motivation. How did you first hear about um, Kylet Taylor and his story, what he was up to? So um, my uh, producing partner and I, Caroline Cox, we met Kylet several years ago working on a different film project that we created called Wild Kitchen. And uh, I hosted that TV show. And I got to travel all across the Northwest Territories and meet really, really awesome, amazing people 
who were somehow really closely connected to their food, whether they were hunting it or foraging or fishing or trapping, um, were just somehow really closely connected to northern specific food. And that was the, the whole premise of the show. And we featured Kylik on one of our episodes where we went up to the Delta and we spent we spent the weekend with him and we went hunting and we went fishing and, you know, got to see, you know, the, the abundance in the fall time of the Beaufort Delta and everything that it has to offer. And we hit it off really great. And, and we are huge fans of the work that Kylik has been doing up um, in his community. And uh, so we've always been, you know, kind of keeping in touch with Kylik and, all, you know, getting updates on what he's doing. And then during the pandemic, um, he, he runs uh, a tourism company me a very you know a very successful one um for many years but then when the pandemic hit he had to basically liquidate his whole business in 48 hours so he had you know two years of bookings completely completely canceled borders were locked down to northwest territories everything was completely locked down and then he was left at this crossroads to say okay what do i do to now support my family do i a get a job in town and work 60 hours a week at a job that I hate, probably in an office, to be able to afford enough money to heat my house and put food in the fridge, which is a very, you know, it's no small feat in Anuvik when, you know, a, a bag of, um, uh, what do you call it, a bag of chips is, is $8 and, you know, a tiny, uh, you know, thing of, of uh, veggies for a stir fry is $26. Like I can wow. show you pictures of grocery store prices. So even just keeping the lights on and putting food in the fridge is like Herculean task in uh-huh. the Arctic. So he decided, so he said, okay, do I do that? Or do I take my family, move my family out to my hunting ground, chop wood for six hours, you know, a week to get enough wood to heat my house go hunting three times a week to get enough food to fill the freezer for a month and spend lots of time with my family. So, hmm, tough, tough call. (laughs) (laughs) So he decided to um, take a really big leap and and make a big, bold, kind of crazy idea. And he moved his family out to his hunting ground um, outside of Anubik. And then from there, he started to keep percolating on this crazy idea of how can we, in the North, use the abundance that we have and and I don't think a lot of people think of the north as a very abundant place when you think of Canadian abundance everyone's like oh the Okanagan or you know wine country or you know Mm -hmm. we think of orchards in BC or we think of apples in Quebec or you know whatever people think of so we don't have this understanding of what northern abundance looks like and as someone who lives so closely with the land who experiences on the daily what that means he really started to think about like, how can this model be extrapolated out to the larger community to help fight some of these things that we're dealing with? Food insecurity, housing insecurity, Mm -hmm. um, loss of language and culture. And so the, the, this idea of him moving out of town and creating this off-grid community um, started to become this, this notion of, can we create a village that's a cultural hub where we can be using um, traditional knowledge, the way our ancestors have lived for thousands of years, who've already figured out so much of this stuff. Can we go back to a version of something like that? We can, we can never go back. We don't need to go completely back, but we yeah, do yeah, yeah. maintain some of that knowledge. So is there a way that we can use that as a vehicle 
for cultural reclamation, for language reclamation, and a place to give people real meaningful skills that they can go, oh, now I know how to make a log cabin with a sod roof. I can go do that for the cost of my labor and a few tools. I can go do that at my own camp and I can go and build my own little food security project, housing security project. Oh, I too can also live for five bucks a day, you know, to go and take care of my family. So that's what started this big, crazy idea with Kylik. And um, so Caroline and I were like, that's a movie. We want to, we want to follow this. We want to, we want to make this documentary. And so, and so we followed him for basically a, a full calendar year as he got this project up and off the ground, starting from the very seeds of this, you know, one little ramshackle shack and a teepee and an RV that was out at his hunting ground to, you know, a pretty, pretty smooth running functioning um, village that supports people that somebody lives out there full time. He's basically out there full time in the summer working with his, with his tourism business that is back up and running. He brings elders and youth out there for education programs. He brings tourists out from all over the world to come and like experience living in the village, going fishing, eating muktuk, checking the fishnets, learning some Inuvialuktun in the process. Um, and then it's also a site of employment for, for um, people from Inuvik to also be like, oh, hey, I can get paid to be in my culture and be out here as an experience. Like that is a viable career option. So it was this crazy idea that we followed him with over the, the full year from the foundation up. I love um, how the movie both opens and closes with those words. There's no reason we should be having a housing crisis. There's no reason we have should have food insecurity. Everything is here. Exactly. And, and your movie beautifully not only illustrates that, but invites people, I felt, invites people to be part of a solution to under, a deeper understanding, but also a, a sense of, like, I guess my question might be those skills that people learn, those, you know, learning to live off the land and be in a respectful relationship with the land. Do you see that all having even more far reaching kind of impact in terms of understanding globally? Do you know what I'm? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, I think that a huge part of, um, you know, solving some of these big unsolvable questions that we're always wrestling with, you know, climate, racism, patriarchy, you know, these things that feel like unsolvable issues, um, I think are, are actually a lot more simple, but we just love to make things way more complicated. (laughs) So I think that by empowering the most marginalized, by empowering the most sidelined, they have the solutions. They're already so smart. They've already been living in ways that are way superior to our concepts that we've kind of superimposed on, um, on, on more marginalized groups of people. So any work that we can do to just be uplifting them, they're going to lead us. They're going to show us which way to go. And the more uplift that, and that's what we're seeing with Kylik at the camp the more uplifting we can be doing for Inuit who have these skills, they just need to be de-shackled and like lead us, like show us where to go, man. Like, (laughs) you you know, somebody has a plan here. It's just, you're lacking the resources and support to be able to execute some of these things. So I think that giving, giving that power 
or this notion of power, because we always have to think like that, but giving autonomy back to the most marginalized is going to be the way that we are, you know, solving some of these unsolvable things like climate and like, you know, loss of language and cultural identity. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have to fix it in the way that that I think some people think we do. We just need to give the reins back to the people and say, sorry about that. Please help tell us what you need. Mm-hmm. And um, Kylik also talks a little bit about that in the film is that we can't, we can't expect that the people who oppress us also heal us. You know, we need to just stop, stop tugging at that fruit because that's never going to work. And we just need to take action ourselves and demand yes. that they follow our lead. Yeah. And because it, it keeps it. you in a in a disempowered position, believing yeah, it's like, that it's it's, it's yeah. like staying in a toxic relationship and just being like, oh, you, you know, you've changed. You can, also, you can also make me better. It's like, no, no, yeah. you gotta leave that loser, and you yeah. gotta just like do your own thing. And when they're like, hey, sorry, I'm gonna support you, then <laughs> I'm yeah. gonna close the window and suck in here. Yeah. So um, there are a number of principles that keep being alluded to in terms of. Um, the basis for this village. Uh, can we get into some of those? I mean, obviously, it's eco-friendly. That's That was one of them, and sustainable. Yeah. Um, I love that it's, let's talk a little bit more about the inclusive aspect again, because normally people would hear about this and go, well, it's got nothing to do with me. Like, that's great that you're doing that. But talk a bit about why that's so important, because I think I, I think it is. Yeah, I think that um like at the at the at the core of I think so many um non-indigenous Canadians is a real like a genuine desire to help fix a problem. Like we're not all monsters, <laughs> you know. So I think that there is a genuine like just not knowing what to do and not knowing how to help and not wanting to kind of perpetuate a problem by being a white savior or being, you know, swooping in and trying to save the day or whatever. So I think, I think there's some hesitation on like, Oh, this seems cultural and special and I don't want to like be a bull in a China shop. And what do I do? So I think that um, people like Kylik and, and um, programs that are similar in in sort of philosophy are really important because they invite people to come in as guests to say okay like you would if you were inviting somebody in your home to say come in and have this meal you can't go rummaging around in my bedroom in my underwear (laughs) but I, I you are allowed to stay here you are allowed to partake in this you are allowed to observe and participate there's some things that are not for you. There's some things that are behind closed doors, culturally speaking, but that's an important thing. That's an important interaction to be having to promote that understanding. And, and frankly, you know, this is another thing Kylie talks about in the, um, in the film is indigenous people are just trying to stay alive right now. And so to also think that we're going to be, um, you know, literally saving yeah. the ship from sinking as we're also just trying to stay alive and make sure we have enough water and food in our fridge, <laughs> that, that, that those barriers that are so unseen by other people don't get factored into the huge load. You know, we're not all running the same race. It's like with COVID when, remember when those celebrities did that really weird thing by like singing Imagine or something? <laughs> I missed <laughs> and, it. Like we, you know, it was just, 
it was so it was so out of touch to just have a bunch of incredibly rich celebrities from their various estates and villas saying from the comfort of their own mansions we're all in this together we're all in the same storm together and I don't know, we're all in the same boat was like such a thing that was thrown around at the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, people who do not have $3 million homes, $5 million homes, or even just, you know, like who struggle, were like, um, we're not in the same boat. We're in the <laughs> same storm. And your yeah. boat looks a lot different than my boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, there, there was a <laughs> huge degree of ins- uh, uh, insensitivity to, you know, the races that we're all running and the barriers that are literally in some people's way that some people have literally no concept of there being a challenge. So that's also why we need people who are not going through existential trauma, like a lot of us are in the Indigenous community, to also help build these sites as as responsible Canadians, as people who also participate and benefit from racism from white supremacy and from (laughs) patriarchy and capitalism we have a duty as people who benefit from that even myself as an Inuk person I am a fairer skinned I am a younger person I also enjoy a great degree of privilege I'm educated I don't speak with an accent when I'm trying to sound white you know I can be I can make myself fit into places where some of my darker skinned less educated you know, um, uh, peers would be completely treated completely differently. Mm -hmm. And that's me as an Indigenous woman in Canada, who's probably one of, you know, a very marginalized group of people, I can even recognize my own privilege in some spaces Mm -hmm. compared to some of my other um, relatives. Mm -hmm. So I think that any degree of resource that we have, we need to also be helping people with less. And Mm -hmm. it's just so amazing to see what Kylik is doing at the village by saying, who who wants to help make a difference? Right. <laughs> these people come forward. Right. And who who wants to learn how to be more self-reliant? And these people come forward. And he creates an avenue for collaboration. And there's a, a real onus on the free flow of information, right? Exactly. Which is a really beautiful traditional Inuit um, value of a holistic educational approach and a non- non-siloing of knowledge when we look at like how we think of school and education of like okay we from now to now we do math from now to now we do this from now to now we do social studies that it it kind of makes this kind of ice cream tray approach to knowledge that is all separate but Inuit have a very holistic way of looking at a thing of like how can how many what can this could be anything what can this fish teach me about anything? And we look at it and we say, okay, it teaches us about water. It teaches us about um, what animals are responsible for helping this animal to survive. Who's, who eats this fish? What does this tell us about the seasons? What does this tell us about the weather? What does this tell us about nutrition? So there are things that are so holistic in approach that you could spend a day out there and learn so much and not even feel like you're you're being lectured to because you're just observing and watching a way of being that is so totally different from um, an, an inner, you know, an, an urban, an urban um, experience. Mm-hmm. And I loved how 
storytelling was woven throughout the film. Maybe you can touch on the importance of storytelling in the in the culture. Yeah, so Inuit are amazing storytellers. Like I've heard some of the craziest epics <laughs> from, you know, from grannies and grandpas and aunts and uncles, you know, telling really amazing legends. Um, and this this film, I felt it was really important to include an element of a traditional Inuit legend um, there are many that involve an orphan, a young orphan boy, and um, sort of these these uh, trials and tribulations that he goes through. And so I, I took a, a traditional legend that I had um, heard because it completely fit. It really mirrored Kylik and what he's going through and being culturally orphaned to, to kind of mirror his experience with the village, with the, the journey of the orphan um, and in this in this legend, there's a creature that has blue skin and a huge grin that goes from ear to ear. And this creature will eat and eat and it will never be full. And to me, that creature just represented capitalism, that capitalism is this creature that will eat and eat and eat and never be satisfied. It's like a fire that will never say it's OK. I don't I've, I've got enough wood now. I'm good. <laughs> that will just never happen. And so it's this sort of battle how. Um, how the orphan bests this um, creature and saves his community um, from the clutches of this creature, which I, I think so many of our communities and basically the world is also in the clutches of this creature, capitalism, that will never be full. And so we need to deal with this creature. And that's the only way. So that's woven in with the story. Yeah. Yeah, it's, be- it's beautifully done. It's almost lyrical. It's almost musical how it happens. And now, now I've heard that, tell me if this is true, that traditionally shamanism was a taboo subject in Inuit culture. Is that true? Like something you didn't talk about? Well, it's something that post-contact has become taboo. I see. But shamans, you know, were a very well and open, respected aspect of Inuit spirituality and Inuit culture. Um, And it wasn't until the church um, was introduced to the Inuit that we were told that shamanism was evil, that, you know, anything that had to do with paganism or any other notion of spirits um, other than the Holy Spirit were, you know, sinful and evil. Um, And that's when our, our, our spiritual colonization also happened at the same time as our cultural colonization. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's challenging to um, among certain generations of Inuit who were literally had horrible things happen to them. If they spoke their language, talked about any of these things, throat sang, sang any traditional songs, told any stories. Those are the people who are still, 50 years later, so terrified to even talk about shamanism. And, you know, one of our translators, at first, when I asked her help in translating this story into Anubialuktun, was very uncomfortable talking about the the shamanistic element of of the story. And I had to take a lot of very gentle, calm explanation of like why telling this story was so important until Mm -hmm. she agreed and understood what I was trying to do with with the story and and as innocuous as it might be that oh you know 
the shaman did this and then that. And the shaman is mentioned maybe two or three times in the story, but even just the mention of that is still so incredibly scary for so many people. And when we were doing our um, full Inuvialuktun version of the film, um, we even had one of our, our voiceover speakers who wasn't fluent, who was, who was doing some of his own voiceover work at one point, um, almost having like a, a bit of a panic while he was speaking the language. And, and I asked, are you okay? Is everything okay? And he, he you know, he was breathing a bit heavy or like a bit um, shallow. And, and he said, Oh, sorry, guys, I just, uh, I just still feel like Mrs. McDonald and I'm in grade, I'm in grade seven and Mrs. Oh. McDonald is going to come up and smack me in the back of the head for speaking my language. Wow. And like, those are the barriers that Indigenous creators are going through. Those are the various barriers that people who are doing this work are going through. And I don't think that that's fully understood because we're very private about it. Um, or have been for a long time and are now only just starting to share some of those, um, some of those uh, issues and, and things that we're going through. So, you know, shamanism was a very open part of, of Inuit life very practical, very important. Um, and it was just because of the church. And, um, you know, if you're threatened with fiery damnation, then I'm sure a lot of people, you well, know. So it's trauma-based then, the, the, everything you're discussing is trauma-based. Do you think, how do you see, what do you see as a, a really important aspect of healing trauma? Well, I mean, we've touched on many things that would be helpful, but in terms of this, this piece of, of, talking about it or um certainly in in psychotherapy talking is a valuable tool to just be able to process without the fear of punishment yeah really freely yeah yeah i think i think that there you know trauma when when you grow up with traumatized parents and traumatized grandparents you you grow up with trauma model as your only model of being out into the world and trauma thinking from my understanding is very black and white it's very yes and no it's a like trauma thinking is a very binary way of looking at the world because it's something is either safe or not safe or like fight or flight or yes or no right or wrong good and evil and i think about the trauma of um you know sort of heavily oppressive Christianized cultures that right and wrong, sin, heaven and hell, good and evil, you know, these things, man and woman, two genders, only ever, you know, that there are these binaries that can be, um, I think, in my in my theory, <laughs> um, you know, linked to generations of traumatized thinking of ways of looking at the world as this like harsh black and white. And traditionally, Inuit didn't have that worldview. We had many genders. There weren't just two genders. We had many uh, gender roles. There was lots of room for everybody. There was many different ways to resolve conflict. Even lots of our legends. There's not the hero and the villain. There's, right. you know, there's ways that are like, or if you ask an elder a, a question, they might tell you a story and you might be like, oh, I'm more confused actually. Because <laughs> you didn't just tell me yes or no to my yes or no question. You know, there are these things that leave a lot of room um, for nuanced, complex, uh, gray area thinking. And I think that trauma really avoids that place because it's so scary because you don't know we need to know in our survival mode 
is this life or death? Is this exactly? <laughs> you know? it, yeah, the known becomes safety, the unknown becomes terrifying. And yet exactly. it's in the unknown in the mystery that there's potentiality and possibility for new growth. Exactly. So, no, I totally hear you. So uh, I know uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, but for things like the Pope visiting Canada right now that I am just seeing on my, I'm I'm avoiding social media right now, but I'm seeing just the complete polarizing, you know, opinions on what this visit means. And in terms of healing trauma, if people need closure for their trauma, awesome. I hope you get it. If people need an apology, great. If people need an apology plus action, great. If people need to never hear the Pope's name ever again and need to go scream into the void and like say F the church, F organized religion, whatever, whatever, do that. I think as soon as we start to police people's healing, then then we're in trouble. Then we're again in colonizer territory of making sure that there's only one way to heal. Yeah, very well said. Absolutely. Um, the the OPIC, what, what does it mean? Op- so, so OPIC is OPIC actually means. the traditional name um, of one of Kylik's uh, relatives, um, Alan OPIC, Abe OPIC, that he comes from this line of people who were, that was their traditional name was OPIC. And in some parts of the Arctic, an OPIC is an owl, but in the Inuvialuit region, OPIC means willow. And there are tons and tons and tons of willows in in the Beaufort area um so that is the just the family name that they're also in the process of reclaiming um and a lot of traditional names were changed to other things because lazy Indian agents didn't know how to pronounce them so they got written down as other things um so Ukpik is the um is the traditional family name of, of Kylik's family that they they decided to name the village after and what would he like to see as continuing this vision? Does he, is it, does he have one? Is it, I get, I get yeah, the feeling the, he sure the, does. The vision is to get um, Inuvialuktun spoken out there all the time, to have language lessons every day for whoever is out at the village. If it's, okay, guys, we're going to put in a, an outhouse. So we're going to learn all the tools, their names in Inuvialuktun. The, the mechanisms that we're going to be doing and we're going to go and speak no English and do this thing and build it. And we're going to have elders out there telling us not to speak English. And we're <laughs> going to, have, you know, people that are encouraging the daily use, the everyday use of the language for an area where less than 20% of uh, the population can, has any degree of fluency. So it is a very endangered language. Um, he wants to, he wants to employ and empower as many local indigenous people to know how to have these skills so they can go to their own hunting grounds. They can go to their own, you know, their own places and build their own little (laughs) villages with their own families or, you know, next door that, that we're created, that he wants to keep creating this, um, this, this vibrant place where people walk away getting paid, getting paid well for work that isn't just sitting in an office doing something menial that they hate also getting paid to be relearning their language and culture and providing like a real, real skill set for people um, to be using that makes them less dependent on, on a system. It's wonderful. It's, a, uh, it's just beautiful. Um, tell our listeners where they can watch the film when it's being released. And it, it is being released in both languages, yes? Yes. So we did a full, completely overdubbed in Inuvialuktun version and that one's coming out first on August 5th on CBC Gem 
So um, you can go, CBC GEM is, is free. You can just go in, onto their site. It'll be up on August 5th. And then it will be uh, the, uh, the original version, which has Inuvialtun and mostly English, will be airing on August 6th on CBC Manitoba. Awesome. And we're going to, so we can't play the music on Facebook, unfortunately, which is where we're first recording this show, but then it airs on FM radio, 100.5 FM on Wednesday night, six to seven. So I do want to feature your music. And I wonder if you might say something about, I mean, the opening track is uh, took to strut and Mm -hmm. then, then we're closing with say it. uh, Akiani, Akiani elsewhere. So, if you want to just share a little bit about that and Inuit throat singing, that would be really, really great. So, I'm in a band with my sister, and our band is called Piltsilk. My sister Inukshuk and Makai and I have been throat singing together ever since we were small, small children, and uh, we are now full, basically full time touring musicians. Um, and uh, we have a number of albums out. And what you're going to be hearing, Tuktu Strut, is a song that we actually composed. This is an original throat song um, from, from us. And we're imagining a, 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 a Tuktu is a caribou running and strutting around, um, going faster and faster. So that's, that's the first one. And then Ahiani is uh, the word for elsewhere. And for that song, we are just hoping that whoever listens is transported to somewhere else in the listening of it. Beautiful. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you for your film, for your time. And um, yeah, it's just really, really great. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Tasha. Thank you. Okay. Well, we'll see you guys soon. We've been talking with Tiffany Ialik. Don't forget to catch the film August 5th, August 6th, right? Yeah. Uh, CBC. And again, it's called Okpik Little Village in the Arctic. Thanks for joining us. to Conscious Living Radio. For free show downloads, additional information about our guests and topics, or details about upcoming programs, check us out at ConsciousLivingRadio.org.